This is from Justin McCain, a podcast where Mike Robertson and Bob LaRue watch one critically acclaimed film and one terrible film and talk about how they are the same. Welcome, everybody, to From Justin to Kane. We're back to our regular programming. Uh, it's just Mike and myself this week, so sorry if you're disappointed. Um, no guest. I guess we have two guests, and those are the two movies we're going to talk about. What are they, Mike? <laughs> Jeez. How's that for an uh, intro, huh? Seamless. Oh, so seamless. Um, so, so the two smooth. movies are that we're talking about this week, one of them is... The good movie that is Midsummer by Ari Aster came out which in 2019. I hated, which Bob hated. I like yeah. that movie. I a little too spooky, a little too upsetting for me. Oh yeah, right. I forgot that you're a wuss. You're scared. Yeah. Guy. Well, it doesn't help. You said, dude, it's a great rom com. You're really gonna enjoy it. There's a yeah. lot of laughs and a lot of love. And I was like, oh yeah, I love Florence Pugh. This would be like Little Women in Sweden. I was wrong. You were wrong. Horrifying. You misled me. Yeah, and then the other movie is called Into the Night by John Landis, and it came out in somewhere in t- sometime in the 80s. 1985. Uh, that's what I was thinking, yeah. It felt like an 85-er. Yeah, like a midway through the decade kind of thing. Yeah. Were you alive in 1985? Yes, I was. Uh, did you see this film in theaters? In your diaper, mm, I assume? No. No, I don't remember the first movie I saw in theaters. Mikey in a diaper at a movie? Am I right, or what? You? Yes, you're right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, terrible film. It's pretty terrible bad. Terrible huh? movie. Yeah, this is this is uh, yeah John Landis's post uh, Twilight Zone out- output. This was not like a high point for sure. No, he pretty much fell from grace after the accident, which I will get into because he was facing litigation during the production of this movie. Well, he was not wasting to... time. Tell us, tell us about oh. Into the Night. Okay, well, shit, we're not beating around the bush, are we, Mike? Also, worth, worth pointing out the that this movie has Jeff Goldblum in it. Uh, yes. It just Why is that worth pointing out? It's because he's I guess fun. it's also worth pointing out that Michelle Pfeiffer's in it, as yeah, well a, as David Bowie. Yeah, David Bowie, Michelle Pfeiffer, Jeff Goldblum really has, when, when I saw that, I was like, oh, well, I'll watch this movie. This, this is going to be good. So I, I did quite a bit of research on the trial, which took nine months, mm-hmm. and everyone who was accused was acquitted, including mm-hmm. John Landis. But from all the testimonials I read, it pretty much is cut and dried that this is John Landis's fault. He yeah. was uh, a real shithead and killed Vic Morrow and two kids. This movie was made after that happened, and it's crazy that all of these celebs were like, fuck yeah, let's be in John's new movie after he killed a bunch of people, Um, including like David Bowie. Like David Bowie's like, I'll be in your movie. Jeff Goldblum's like, I'll be in your movie. Frank Oz, David Cronenberg, like there's crazy um, cameos in this film. It's a real filmmaker's film, but not in the sense of how it's made. In the literal like per capita, there's a lot of filmmakers in the movie. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The list is very long, and it's it's all over the place. It's like B-movie directors from the 50s all the way to like David Cronenberg, who is at his apex, who right. also made a Jeff Goldblum film. That's correct. He did, yeah. 
Um, but yeah, okay, I'll, I'll I'll get into it. So it was a 60-day shooting schedule, and three weeks in, he was uh, forced to go on trial for manslaughter. Oh, my God. Uh, um, yeah, and then uh, basically he was in and out of court and making this movie at the same time, from what I gathered. Wow, that's, so, so that is, okay, because I was like, when we did this movie, I was like, well, this is a stinker. This is kind of, this might be a bad episode or whatever, but then, no, this is already interesting stuff. Yeah, well, I I'm, the making I will of the movie say, is way more interesting than the movie itself. That's for sure. I, I guess the other thing too we should maybe bring up just because of timing and such is we watched these films four weeks ago, uh, and then we did all the Halloween episodes. But since we've watched these films and we picked these to be the two that we do, we had the incident on Rust with Alec Baldwin, yeah. obviously that happened about a, like two weeks ago from the release of this episode. So it's just interesting making films very dangerous, never worth it. Movies are stupid. Uh, mm-hmm. So our podcast about movies, but here we are. So, anyways, yeah, always, always, always shameful when someone has to die for a pretend. Y- y- yeah, it's it's. I think there's nothing more absurd, truly. Yeah. But here we are. Also, there is an, a very aggressive man with a leaf blower outside. So that may or may not be, you know, some diegetic sound for y'all. Yeah, well, as long as you point it out, it's diegetic. Yeah, exactly. You can get away with anything if you label it. You know what I mean. Um, but anyways, oh yeah, so this film's fascinating. So he was in and out of court while they were making this movie. And uh, so it was a nine-month court case for manslaughter. He was acquitted. Um, the pilot was acquitted. The pyrotechnic guy expert was acquitted. And so was the executive producer, George Folsey Jr. They were all acquitted after nine months in, uh, on trial. But then there were a bunch of subsequent trials with like Warner Brothers and like the different production companies. Um, and basically like uh, Vic Morrow's family got a huge settlement out of court financially, as well as the parents of the two children who passed away. Uh, they also got a huge settlement. But that doesn't negate the fact that basically John Landis and the pyrotechnics guy got away with murder. Well, yeah. Also, I think it's worth pointing out that not everybody knows what happened. I think we're just talking about oh, what I, happened I on the I'm Twilight Zone this. movie as if everybody knows. But So Steven Spielberg uh, made a Twilight Zone feature film, which was basically based off of four episodes of the Twilight Zone. So it's like four vignettes, and each one's directed by a different person. So John Landis did one, George Miller did one, Steven Spielberg did one, and I think uh, the guy who did Gremlins did the fourth one, the the fourth installment in it, okay. whatever his name is. Um, I can't remember. They were all kind of in their heyday. This was 1983 or something. Um, but they were all at their peak. But this was Steven Spielberg's baby, and he basically gave free range or free free range, <laughs> uh, free run uh, for all the directors, and they got to like make their own episode that went within this feature film. But during the production, so three of them went, went off without a hitch, but... John Landis is involved uh, time travel uh, with Vic Mo- and it was starring Vic Morrow, who's uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's dad. And what right. happened? Uh, basically, he's like in modern time, and then he goes into like World War II, and then this is all from memory. I saw this movie a long time ago. Also, it's interesting that they used the stuff in the movie, anyways, even though he died. I think well, that's a that's a wild choice. That is, yeah, that is wild. Um, that's what that, that's what's so interesting about this Rust situation with Alec Baldwin that's happening kind of currently. Yeah. The investigation is like, 
are they going to put this movie out? Are they going to finish it? What's going to happen? I feel like the right thing to do would for them to just stop making the movie and for Alec Baldwin, Baldwin to just retire. Not because he did anything maliciously. If, if because, something horrific like that happens, don't finish the project. Like it's just, that's no, no one wins in that scenario. No. Also the other um, director was Joe Dante. So it was the gremlins guy, Joe, Joe Dante. That's right. That's right. So Joe Dante, Steven Spielberg, uh, George Miller and John Landis were all really, really good friends. And they, they were all kind of in their apex. Um, obviously Spielberg and George Miller are doing just fine. Joe Dante is hurting a little bit. Hasn't made a lot of great stuff <laughs> since gremlins. And John Landis has just gone down the shitter. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, we've all seen Blues Brothers 2000. We um, have horrific, horrific movie. Um, <laughs> I think we have. Uh, it's so bad. We should do it on the podcast. Honestly, I've never seen the first Blues Brothers movie. What? It's Not- so good. I also got to say, one of my every time, films. every time that the Blues Brothers came on the original SNL, I didn't care for it. Uh, they were not good on SNL. It was stupid. I was going to so, say, I, I respect in, you know, the memory of J- uh, John Belushi, but it's like, who cares? You guys are, yeah. it's a comedy show. And I, it's just because I read a biography of John Belushi. Yeah. And he uh, was just super, super into the blues to the point where he was like, let's just make a character that we can, so we can sing the blues on TV. And Dan Aykroyd was like an old disc jockey and he loved music and the blues as well. Yeah. And, I think they were just both nerds and they found a vehicle in Saturday Night Live to just sing non-funny blues songs. Mm-hmm. Like the first album they released, the one with the blue border, is not funny. It's just like a, a run-of-the-mill no. blues album. Exactly. I will say, Blues Brothers, the film, is not funny, but it's very entertaining. Yeah, there's some and, action scenes. Yeah, like the car chases are epic. I think the musical numbers are really fun. But there are mm-hmm. a bunch of jokes that don't land. But it's like, I want to see a car chase through a shopping mall. That's just fucking epic. Supposedly, Mr. T is in that scene. Uh, in the The car scene mall? in the shopping mall, yeah. Oh. He makes a cameo. Interesting. As just like an extra, I think. So a huge... Um, fame. Right. A big thing with John Landis is he loves cameos. Like, he's just a huge, huge fan of cameos. And so, Blues Brothers is riddled with them. But also, he's good buddies with Frank Oz. And Frank Oz is in all of his movies in tiny roles. Um, including this one. But anyways. Wait, hold on a second. Sorry, just when I was doing a little bit of side research. Yeah, as we I were can talking. see the bright light on your face. You're, you're Googling, you dirty reviewer. Just because I, I was trying to remember if there was a Blues Brothers video game. Mm-hmm. Is and there, there was... Ooh. Um, many. On what system? So there was one, the original one came out on like the PC in like the 80s. Yeah. There was, or in the 90s. And then there was a Blues Brothers Super Nintendo game. Ooh. And then, get this, there was a Blues Brothers 2000 N64 game. I would play that. You would play that? It's Yeah. It's, it, unsurprisingly reviewed extremely poorly. <laughs> well, I can't even imagine what the gameplay would be. Supposedly, it is a um, 3D platformer like Super Mario 64, I think. Oh, okay. I believe, like, I can't see any pictures of it, but uh, on this article I'm looking at, but. Um, is there a free uh, simulator or what? Like a, you know, like an N64 simulator, but it's like, yeah, you can just play the Blues Brothers 2000 for free. 
Uh, oh yeah, this. no, 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 no. I was looking on Wikipedia. Yeah, it looks it looks like complete garbage. It looks, but it is like a platform like Super Mario sixty four, which is wild that, to to think about. Well, that's just such a classic money grab. They're like, mm, how do we make a game out of this? I guess platformers, because that's all we mm. have the technology for, which is stupid. It was made by Titus, which I believe was the company that made the Superman sixty four game. That's right. I believe you're right. I believe you're right. Another home run. So we've gone really off the rails here. I think um, that's what people want. Listen, I'm having a latte. I'm fucking jacked up right now. Does John Landis get uh, like any of the money from Blues Brothers 2000, the N64 game? Did he get Uh, the residuals? Probably. So you know what's crazy? Even after all this shit in the late 90s, he is offered Men in Black. And guess what he does? John Landis? He turns it down because... He thinks they're ripping off the Blues Brothers, and he's too proud. How fucked up is that? Even, well, you know, almost 20 years later, they're like, let's hire this guy for a huge franchise, because why not? Even though he murdered some people. Yeah, he murdered some people, right? With right. a helicopter. With a helicopter. That's not I a know, casual insane, way to murder. Insane way to, to, to kill somebody. Yeah, yeah. Well, three people. If we're going to get into semantics, he killed three people. And we will. Two of them, minors, just children. Unbelievable. Who were also working illegally. Even more unbelievable. This is, yeah, just thinking, the more I think about what happened on the Twilight Zone movie, of all movies also, yeah, yeah. The, more un, the more I just can't believe that it actually happened. And yeah. it's, it's been coming up a lot in the last couple of weeks. Uh, oh, absolutely. Online. Well, and history repeats itself, right? So after uh, the Twilight movie, incident um the uh, warner brothers uh the dgc or the director's guild dg a yeah director's guild of america and one other union some sort of film labor union i don't, I don't think it was iatsi but something else they all like created a oh sag created all these safety measures and accidents like went down substantially but within the next 10 years there were eight more deaths mm-hmm. just random deaths on sets there's no excuse for that. It's silly. Yeah, and it, you know, you really only ever hear about it when it's like an actor. Yeah, well, I mean, crew crew die all the time, and nobody gives a shit. But it's like, yeah. oh, fam- famous person died, and then well, now we're the, upset. In this case, famous person murdered somebody. Yeah, like a super super famous person murdered somebody. Oh, literally as famous as it gets. Yeah. Um, and it's just absolutely horrific that this happens. And again, it's all for make believe. Hmm. And, you know, yeah, it's just, it, it blows my mind that they uh, used John Landis's segment in the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah. So Vic Morrow's still in the movie. And then there's just like an abrupt end to the, uh, like the short film within the film. It's just, it's so stupid. But another thing that happened was Steven Spielberg, who was the executive producer of the Twilight Zone and directed one of those segments, he and John Landis were really good friends and they haven't spoken since the incident. They just like friends off you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i don't know if that's like steven spielberg being like you're a piece of shit or if he's like wow this is terrible branding for me i'm the dreamworks guy you know probably all all of the above yeah yeah also i i don't know i feel like if you go through uh i mean he wasn't uh, maybe he was he on the set that day uh steven spielberg no he wasn't okay no because yeah i feel like if you were uh, there's like a traumatic experience linking linking you then you might just be like, all right, we don't need to see each other again. Yeah, yeah. I don't even think Steven Spielberg was aware like, of how dangerous 
John Landis's segment was. John Landis, so he was repeatedly warned but the helicopter being too close to the actors and too close to the pyrotechnics. And he just basically said, I don't give a shit. What's the worst that could happen? We'll lose the helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, the pilot was like, I don't want to do this. This is super dangerous. There are multiple camera people in the helicopter who can hear over the radio. John Landis screaming at them to get closer and closer to the actors and to the pyrotechnics. And then on one of the takes, the guy detonated the thing and it blew off the rear rotor. Mm-hmm. completely off and then the helicopter basically started spinning out of control and went sideways and immediately like uh i guess this is a trigger warning decapitated vic morrow mm-hmm. and then uh one of the kids that he was holding and crushed the other one they all died instantly yeah how fucked is that totally and this Completely. was a few miles outside of la yeah so like just a lot of shit went wrong and it's absolutely horrific and uh like the parents were lied to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like they were never told there were going to be explosions, gunfire, or helicopters. Just noise. That's all they were warned about. Is you know just a bunch of dicey shit that happened, and that negligence led to a horrific, horrific incident. Um, and and then, how does John Landis get away with it? Not I don't. That he know. did it maliciously, obviously, but Ho- Hollywood lawyers, man. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to. That and money, because he was mm-hmm. acquitted. He he got off scot free. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you could and sell that. He, you could sell that as an accident, even though he knew the precautions. And yeah, ignored them. Well, I think the same thing's going to happen with Rust. To be honest yeah. with you, right? Even though there was some serious negligence, uh, they're just going to blow it off. Um, but anyways, and then so John Landis c- continued to have a career after this. That's wild. Trading places, coming to America. This movie, Into the Night, I almost forgot the name of it, lol, it's so bad. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and he and he was f- dealing with the litigation and the trial during the making of this movie, which is like bananas. Right. Uh, um, yeah, it's wild because like Elaine May made Ishtar. Yeah. And it was just bad mm-hmm. and it bombed. And then they were like, you can't make another movie. Whereas uh-huh. John Landis murders three people, yeah, on like, <laughs> and gets to keep making movies. Yes, like what? Yeah, what if that the, isn't the patriarchy, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. You can literally get away with murder and still have a career, mm-hmm. but you make one just like bad movie. Yeah, and uh, you're you're dead in the yeah. water, you know. And Elaine May of all people, who's like, uh, you know. She's famous and has made some great stuff. Mm-hmm. She just can't stop making stuff. Yeah. Uh, so also, so this film was uh, profoundly unremarkable in, in every way. Uh, it was made for seven, or it was made for eight million, made seven and a half. So it right. almost broke even. The reviews basically were lukewarm at best. Not a lot of super negative reviews, but no raving reviews either. Just everyone yeah. who saw it was like, that was okay. And I it think- was definitely a movie. I, I think the the best way to describe this film is how unremarkable it is. It isn't remarkably bad, and is it's it is not remarkably good. It's just this like very dull film. Yeah. And then above all of that are are the insane uh, a listers who are in it. Like you you know David Bowie was at his apex. Yeah. And he's in it as some weird assassin guy. French was he French? 
Something no. like that, yeah. He was he was European. He was vaguely European. European. Vaguely European, that's right, yeah. Um oh also you get a uh, John Landis starring in the film pretending to be Iranian, which is fun. Right. Yeah. Uh I I was like, is that John Landis? And I was like, oh my god, that's John Landis. And you see John Landis doing like clown. Yeah. Like Abbott and Costello clown very poorly. And I think it's fascinating. Again, John Landis killed three people, and then he put himself in this movie as a comedy relief. Yeah, that's um, he just made some wild not decisions. Very this whole film, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I think he's deluded. He's just like a crazy guy. Seems to seems to run in the the Landis family. Yeah, well, I know you love Max Landis. I oh, you I, I you love him. Yeah. you really adore the man. Yeah, yeah, I was super into his his rants about pop culture he'd post on youtube way back in the day well when your dad is you know the guy who made blues brothers i guess your opinion is uh, uh, more important than someone else's yeah you know what i mean that's what it comes down to but yeah this this film is very silly not self-aware and some wild choices were made that are just kind of like disturbing it's also a really violent movie yeah very violent and not funny and the comedy, like, uh, John Landis is trying to emulate. And, like, Abbott and Costello is on a TV in the movie. Like, you can tell the influence is slapstick, like, old American slapstick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it like, trying to be, you know, contemporary at the same time. And it's so clumsy. Yeah, it's always weird when they make these movies that are comedies. Mm-hmm. And they're not that funny. Or there's <laughs> no jokes in them. I think you just described... But they're still sold as a comedy. I think you described uh, John Landis's whole career. I, Ooh, I you burn. know, because Animal House was his big breakout. It was a big breakout for a lot of people, as well as like National Lampoon's first foray into film. Mm-hmm. And it is Net like Lamp. a comedy classic, right? And there are things in it that you could say are funny, but it is not that funny of a film. No. And then Blues Brothers, not a funny film. Definitely not. An American Werewolf in London, not a scary film. Uh, I'd say, you know, coming to America is not funny either. Trading places is not very funny. None of these movies are funny, yet he made a whole string of 80s comedies that are heralded as classics, and they're all shitty. Yeah. Also, like, this might be a hot take. Oh. Um, Spitfire, my friend. Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Not funny. What's the appeal of that guy? I don't know. He's not funny. I respect him for his SNL work. Yeah. Um, but just like rarely have I seen him in a movie where he is funny and he's always in comedies. Like he, he really doesn't make jokes or say anything or do anything funny, but we're just supposed to laugh at him because he's there. I'm, I'm going to outheat your hot take. Okay. I don't even think he was funny on SNL. Okay. Wow. That's a, that is a hot take. That's the hottest take there ever was. I was obsessed with early snl when i was a kid and i bought the first five seasons on mm-hmm. the dvd yeah you know yeah. and i, I love that two. cast i love that yeah. cast they're amazing and i thought dan Aykroyd was kind of the weakest guy he was the most obnoxious mm. he had a m- mustache for almost all of it yes and uh, you know like fish in a blender guy butt crack plumber guy they're not funny trying to think of a character he did that prove me wrong <laughs> uh he played he played julia child that was kind of funny I don't remember that, but it doesn't sound that funny. Was that the fish in the blender thing? Uh, no, he's he's just like a salesman what, trying what, to sell sell a blender. 
and he puts mm-hmm. like a trout into it. Oh, right. But then he also had the the toy salesman. Yeah, he well, he did a bunch glass. of sales stuff where he just talked real fast. I think that was why people thought he was funny back then. Was that was his whole. Sh- he talked. It's fast. like Chevy Chase falling into chairs and falling out of chairs, and it's like, wow, this is fucking funny. It's like, ah, Chevy Chase, not that funny. Um, my girl, was he funny in that? Uh, I no, that was a, that was actually a, that was actually a drama. Oh, uh, is that a um, movie? Ghostbusters. Yeah, that he's was not, the movie. He's, he's not funny. My go- Ghostbusters. My girl is the movie with Macaulay Culkin where he dies getting stung by bees. That sounds hysterical. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's see. I'd Any say places? the thing that Dan Aykroyd is funniest movie. in mm-hmm. is um, uh, Ancient Aliens, the docu series. Oh, really? Because Dan Aykroyd's like a huge fucking alien guy. He loves aliens. Hmm. He's like a. He's just nuts about aliens and vodka. So he's in Into the Night. Yes, he is briefly. Yeah, and he's in Twilight Zone the movie. Yeah, and and, and he's in Trading Places. Did you ever see The Great Outdoors? Uh, yes. Um, Not a good film. He's. I don't think he's. I think he. He's like a comedic straight man who's also can be funny, but never does. Yeah, well, because John Candy in The Great Outdoors steals the show. Did you see My Stepmother is an Alien? No. This. Uh, that's an interesting film because. It is him, and um, she was married to Alec Baldwin, Kim, uh, Kim Basinger. Oh yes, 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 yeah. Um, so yeah, so it has Dan Aykroyd, Kim Basinger, and a young Allison Hannigan playing the daughter. Oh, oh wow! But but uh, Dan Aykroyd is you know he's the the first name on the poster, but yeah. he makes zero comedic like impact on the film. Kim mm-hmm. Basinger is actually doing a kind of like a very delicate balance between being like a sex object in the film yeah, and also being very funny. Oh, interesting. For someone who's not- I can't picture her being funny. Well, she's, yeah, she- But she's she's, good in it. I mean, it's a terrible film. It's a very bad film, but she- And she's just being objectified the She like carries the film- single-handedly carries this movie. Wow. while, While being sexy and funny, sometimes in the same moment. And uh, See, Dan Aykroyd does like he just neither. is there to like to like gawk at her, I guess, or to be yeah. dumbfounded. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of insane. We should keep talking about Into the Night if there's anything left to uh, say. There, there's only a little bit more, um, but uh, I just want to go over the uh, cameos. So obviously, John Landis is like a filmmaker's filmmaker in that he puts filmmakers in his films as mm-hmm. he's filmmaking them. <laughs> how, how was that for a sentence? That was an amazing sentence. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I do. Oh, I just saw a car drive down the one way, the wrong way in front Uh-oh. of my place. I love that. I see it about three times a day. Anyways, okay. So uh, Rick Baker, famous. He did the werewolf in American War- Werewolf in London. Uh, Jack Arnold, who is like a B-film director. Paul Bartel also. David Cronenberg. Jonathan Demme. Jim Henson. Lawrence Kasdan. Wow. There's about 20 other cameos, but I didn't know who they were, so I didn't bother saying them. But, like, you know, Jonathan Demme, who would go on to do Silence of the Lambs. Mm-hmm. Jim Henson, obviously, Sesame Street or whatever. No, the Muppets, lol. Um, Both. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And then Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote Empire Strikes Back and and also the more recent films and has directed many films. Uh, and they all have cameos, which is insane. Not to mention David Bowie. I would say his is a cameo because he's so 
sparse. Mm-hmm. But when he's in there, he's in there, you know, like a dirty shirt. It kind of reminded me of the third man. And I'd say John Landis is also his own cameo. Appropriating culture, being like vaguely mi- Middle Eastern, and also a criminal, but also doing Abbott and Costello slapstick the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, really just uh, a terrible film on so many fronts. <laughs> and And just a profound level of mediocrity sort of throughout. Uh, this is um, at Jeff Goldblum at his steamiest. I'd say the eighties. Yeah. The eighties were sort of the apex. I mean, he's hot now. Don't get me wrong. He's a real silver fox, real yeah. hot daddy, one might say. But uh, zaddy. Uh, yeah, it, exactly what Mike said. Um, but uh, this is sort of his apex of sex appeal. Oh, there's also eight uh, playmates in the film. They have cameos who are all on the cover of Playboy. I don't know their names or who they were, but I read that there's a bunch of playmates, and Play, then it lists Playboy. Them. Playboy, what's that? I don't, I don't know what that is. I've never, I've never looked at anything <laughs> like that. Oh, Mike, don't lie to me. The listeners uh, know you're a little pervy perv. Wild, yeah. The Wikipedia page for this movie, I looked at it briefly, and it's mostly about the cameos. Yeah, it's, really it's about exclusively the about the cameos because there's nothing else to talk about. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the fact that he was on trial during the movie is the one of the only interesting parts about the whole film yeah and uh, but you know jeff goldblum you're right he was a zaddy in this film also when did he start talking like a weirdo because he doesn't really talk like a weirdo in this movie or in like the fly or his other 80s movies no his his cadence even in um he's not weird in jurassic park yeah i know jurassic park is where it starts i think i think well yeah but but it's like uh i'd say it's similar to there's a whole conversation to be had about al pacino there's like a series of actors who like in their early career are just normal and then they yeah. just lean into something. I don't know what it is because mm. Jeff Goldblum leans into this offbeat cadence like he's always scatting with his yeah. vernacular, which is like a really weird thing. I almost can't listen to him like I listened to him on Mark Maron's podcast and I had to shut it off. Yeah. And we, ne- we never got to find out who his guys were. I was like, ooh, yucky. Yucky, yucky. I can't do this. Um, but that's also what's given him his career. I think I think he wouldn't have had as great a career if he didn't have such a weird way of yakking. Uh, and Al Pacino, I think, is the same thing. Like the hooah. Uh, we've talked about this before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He won the Oscar for Scent of a Woman and that turned. turned <laughs> he just then, it played that like blind guy in every movie since. He came out after that, right? And then yeah. he was like. Got a great ass, and that was and like, your head's way up. It, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Because you see him in uh, Dog Day Afternoon, and it's like, oh, he's just like a, he's just a guy. He's sweaty like everyone else. Well, also we talked about the this a little. We talked about this a little bit with the Godfather. Yeah, his um, performance in that movie so subtle, and then the one time his character explodes in the film is so impactful because yeah, it's uh, so out of character. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. we're to believe that at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then like that one split second in The Godfather is the entirety of his career post Scent of a Woman pretty much. Yeah. Anyway. Shout out to Al Pacino. Um, I guess just the similarity I got to get out of the way. Both films. Midsummer. I know. We haven't talked about Midsummer yet. How exciting. And we this never will. A, this is such a juicy episode. <laughs> um but uh, oh, I guess there's two things. There, both characters die in both films, and there's infidelity mm-hmm. in both films. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. Just I had to get that out of the way. 
because I felt like we haven't done a similarity yet. Or a oh yeah, right. I forgot what this podcast was. And about we're like f- pretty. We're over half an hour deep. Anyways, that's pretty much it. I I I did research about nine minutes of research. I was late for the Zoom call. Mike can attest to this. I can. And literally everything on the internet is just about cameos or the trial, um, which I think is a testament to how mediocre this film is. Yeah. That everything about the film is not about the film itself. It's about the stuff around the film. Right. Like, isn't it crazy? There's a quick shot of Jonathan Demi. That is crazy. Yeah. Again, he's a filmmaker's filmmaker. Puts filmmakers in his filmmaking. <laughs> and he's a murderer. Yes. Uh, let's talk about uh, your movie, uh, Midsommar. So Midsommar is directed by Ari Aster, who did Hereditary. Yes. Which, uh, both films I hate. I've never seen Hereditary. What? No, oh, you should. If you like Midsummer, you like uh, Hereditary. Yeah, no, I liked Midsummer, and I was like, oh, I could totally see why everybody liked Hereditary based on the trailers. And then, yeah, just being able to cobble it together in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, this movie was a, uh, originally pitched to Ari Aster by two Swedish guys from a Swedish film company mm. who were like, can you make a slasher film, uh, set amongst Swedish cultists? Like someone pitched the idea to him, this other film Crazy. company. Crazy. And I was, sweet, Swedish people. And they were Swedish people. So you'd think that, you know, this would have been an American, you know, idea saying, and then just being like. Swedish people are weird, hey? But no, it's Swedish people being like, hey, Swedish people are weird, hey? I was, you know, the whole thing, the whole time, I had two thoughts. I was like, I feel really gross, and I hate that I have to watch this. I hate you, Mike, for recommending it. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was, does this piss off Sweden? I'm sure some people were, yeah, definitely annoyed Like, it, it. it really paints a bizarro, because it's a very, like, foreign look at Sweden. Well, there's like a, a very like we're American. Sweden's weird. There's a similarity for you right there. To oh. the, both movies have foreign cultures represented as absurd stereotypes. Right, right. Hey, that's a great one. That's actually yeah. A, yeah, a, the, like a good deep one. Nice. Yeah. Well, they're re- the Iranian characters in uh, Into the Night. One of the witches portrayed by John Landis, remarkably, <laughs> while he was on trial for murder for decapitating someone with a helicopter. <laughs> Wow, when you say it like that, Mike. <laughs> just going, just driving from set to the court or from the court to the set. Like, he's well, just God, like sorry, in guys, brown leave face yeah. at, like at the trial. He's like, ah, it's a living. I'm making a movie. Yeah. <laughs> he's not Italian. I don't know why. I, oh, no, he is. Oh, that's right. He is Italian. Yeah, he cha- his family changed his name from Landino or to something. Landis. To Landis, yeah. Landis, um, oh, I got to I'm not going to make the joke. Anyways, okay, continue. Landis helicopter? Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> and then you said it with uh, more st- seriousness and yeah, <laughs> anyways. He uh, could not land this helicopter. Um, wow. Too soon? Question mark? Well, no, it's. Every tragedy you know, wow. is a tragedy. Forever. Forever. Yeah, yeah, there's no expiration date on tragedy. No. That's, that's a, a that's quote. a that's a powerful quote. Yeah, put it on a shirt. Put that in a card. We should mark and give it to people. We should get from Justin McCain merch. It has like the from Justin McCain like logo, and then it says, uh, "There's no expiry date on a tragedy or whatever you said." <laughs> yeah, there's no expiration date for yeah. tragedy. Yeah, 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 yeah. That'd be so just, weird. Or just a hat that says, "There's no expiration date for a tragedy." 
People are like, why do you wear that shirt? It's like, oh, it's from a fun movie podcast. I like. <laughs> That's so fucked. I feel like everything we do is meta, but like not in a good way or like a cost effective way. There's just like, it's always a reach, you know? But in like a Facebook VR kind of way? Uh, ooh, you're so topical Timely. today. I Timely. love it. Spicy. Man, nothing but hot takes from your gullet. Okay. Uh, Did anyone to... die making Midsommar? As far as I know, nobody died making Midsommar, and nobody Sweet. was on trial for murdering someone on their previous movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I thought that was so, going to be a similarity, but it turns out it's hard no. to find a movie. <laughs> yeah, uh. there's, there's only so many. Yeah. So uh, back to the, the making of the film. So the movie was pitched to him by these Swedish dudes. So Ari Aster was like, I don't really have an idea for how to make this. But then he went through a relationship. Uh, or he went through a breakup. Oh, yeah. And then he was like, I'm going to make this about a deteriorating, deteriorating relationship as like the central conceit. Class. Uh, that the movie revolves around, which, you know, works. Yeah. Um, the movie was... Uh, budgeted for nine million dollars and it made almost 50 million dollars so wow a big hit that's the thing like in this modern landscape only the genre film and i think specifically horror can be made cheaply but make lots of money whereas your your normal like kitchen sink drama it's like oh we made it for uh like uh 18 million dollars and it earned 12 million dollars you know what Why i mean where it's so like expensive? get out it's like three million uh and it made like 150 well, then I guess the horror genre is not so uh, doesn't feel so bad about paying people, you know, less than standard. I guess. Well, no, I, I, I like uh, you know, uh, there's this whole conceit that it's like you either have to make a, a film for less than a million for it to actually make money, or it needs to be almost a hundred million or more and mm-hmm. a franchise to make money. But anything in between is basically hooped because of That's the modern stupid. the modern market has created this huge divide and really it's the it's the cinema goers fault Mm -hmm. yeah they are it's like i just want to see black widow i just want to see uh you know florence Pugh and scarlett johansson uh fight people okay midsummer we keep getting distracted so yeah Uh, a little fun fact about the flower dress uh that uh, florence Pugh's character wears at the end the iconic flower dress Mm mm-hmm um, it's just stuff with like bags of pillows and then mm. the flowers were just kind of like sitting on this, like, yeah, she just was basically just filled with surrounded by pillows and, but she was in the sunset or sorry, she was out in the sun. So it was extremely hot. Wearing sweating this, her like, bag off. She was sweating the bags off. Yeah. So, but there was a bunch of like mini fans also under the, under the flower dress. Nice. Kind of keeping her cool. So fun little fact. Uh, and then they auctioned off a bunch of props for um a firefighter's charity i believe um uh this the the flower dress had 10,000 silk flowers and uh was sold to the academy museum of motion pictures for $65,000 so wow so if you want that that's where it is you can do a cool. heist we should, yeah we should plan a heist and steal that flower dress I just want the pillows. I need a new pillow. <laughs> just Best sleeping. place to get it is is it from that dress. I mean, why is does yeah? Why do why do we not just have 
why do we have beds? Why don't we not just have clothes that are like made out of bed? You know, and then you and then you can sleep anywhere and you can sleep anywhere. Yeah, yeah. It's just like a suit that's like a sleeping bag. You can just sit and and sleep. You know. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great. I guess that's what a neck pillow is. Mm -hmm. So you you know you could use a neck pillow anywhere. Fuck, you're set. Yeah, I know. You're you're golden. Um, back to the movie. Yeah, Mike, you're really derailing this whole thing, dude. Come on. Be be more professional. Supposedly, the rituals in the movie were based on historical fact in Sweden. So, um, Jeez. the jumping off of the cliff was a custom that, that that existed in Sweden not even that long ago. Oh yeah, like the nineties. Maybe like that. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't. It didn't say. I. It was an interview with one of the the people in the movie, one of the historical researchers, and they were talking about how. Uh, yeah. Old old people would just jump off cliffs when they got too old. They were basically put to sleep, as it were, you know? Yeah, I guess that beats hospice for some people, I guess. Exactly. And the yeah. same with the oversized mallet that they used to, like, finish oh. the job as... Oh, God. It was so grisly. I hated mm-hmm. that. No pun intended because of the bear suit. <laughs> yeah, but supposedly they were based in historical fact about Sweden. Right. So I have a, I have a question. What... Sure. So that one guy who is hanging from the ceiling in the in the shack, and mm-hmm. his like lungs were still expanding. What was that all about? What did, I don't know. Was he still alive? Uh, no. But I doubt it. But he was like breathing. Then he was. But how? His whole back was exposed. You could see his like spine and rib cage, and his lungs were like outside of him, but like contracting and expanding. Uh, I don't know. Maybe do you, do you have some, in some sort of liminal trivia state. For that? I do not know. Oh, okay. I only All have right. one more little fun fact. What is it? They did a long process of trial and error. This is what Ari Aster says about finding the nuance for the um, m- uh, mushroom trip that they take. Oh, yeah. All the drugs. So they just tried to figure out the best way to represent it. Mm-hmm. And they he he had done a lot of mushrooms in his life. Plus, also a lot of the cast members had. So yeah. they just kind of had a big a big mushroom meeting. To talk about <laughs> the best way to like represent that, yeah. How did um, you, how, how, acting, how did you feel about it? Don't think I've ever done mushrooms. Oh, okay, okay. I I've I've done them, and I was like, this is I buy this, but it's like I feel like um for like casual drugs in movies, mm-hmm. they always fuck it up because it's like, oh, this character smoked weed, and now everything's neon mm-hmm. and like dragging, and it's like, eh, that's not really it, and like you know the. The depiction was like subtle enough for the mushrooms, but it was not like an accurate representation. But I think it like implied it well enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without exactly. it being too like, well, look, it looks like everything looks like a Van Gogh painting or whatever, you know, which would have been yeah. uh, shitty. So, I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought it was a good depiction, but not like realistic, as, you know, doing shrooms is very subjective. Truly, it is. That's yeah. another thing to put on some merch. Doing shrooms <laughs> is very subjective. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's uh, let's uh, chat about some similarities between the films. That's true. We were put on this green earth for one reason and one reason only: to tell you via podcast that John Landis killed some people with yes. a helicopter crash. Yeah, I guess. Uh, okay, so yeah, murder. Uh, oh, I guess both both films are shockingly violent late in the yes. film. 
like like because it's not obviously the 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 beginning of midsummer you're like because the asphyxiation with the carbon monoxide from the car exhaust and stuff like that's all really fucked up and weird but then you're like okay this this just feels like a domestic drama for a while like it's not a horror movie and then gradually it just like amps itself up and with into the night it starts as a comedy not a funny one but a comedy Mm-hmm. And then it just gradually gets more and more violent and fucked up. There was like a time where in like between the 80s and 90s where comedies were not violent at all. Mm-hmm. They were just funny. Yeah, yeah. Those were uh, the days. And then in like sometime in the mid 2000s, there's like this trend of hyper violent comedies or or yeah, comedies where there's like, like violent scenes that like are kind of, I guess, so grotesque as to be funny. Do you have a, an example? Um, I think Pineapple Express. Yeah, that's well, I mean, what I was thinking. The, too. It's, th- it's movies that play on genre usually. Yeah. Tropic uh, Thunder is kind of Tropic in Thunder. That. Yeah, I think Game Night had some extremely violent m- moments in it. Right, right. Uh, Game Night is pretty funny, but what I what could, are they doing though? Are they just illustrating the fact that like sort of horror and like action and comedy are all f- the same coin, but just like inversions? Hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, I I, I think you could. There's a case to be made for comedy and horror having very similar uh, trajectories. I guess it could be said. You know, right. like basically just trying to build some sort of tension, be it actual horror tension or comedic tension. That being like you set something up and then you're just waiting for the payoff kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think a well done horror comedy kind of balances those two things at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's just interesting when the, a comedy movie goes for violence yeah Yeah. uh into the night not so much for comedic impact though i think that was the thing that 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 my point was kind of arriving at maybe was in more recent years at least that extreme violence is funny i guess the hangover movies maybe also oh yeah 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 that's a good example especially the later two get a little more raunchy and amplified and violent yeah i guess it's Um, just the extreme raunch plus like extreme violence it's extreme raunch. You, you got to dip your veggies in that raunch dip. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good hey, stuff. can I get some raunch for my pizza? I got to <laughs> dip my pizza in this raunch. What kind of pizza are you dipping in raunch? Uh, like a like a veggie korma. Mm, nice, nice. Veg, veggie korma in this raunch dip. Um, um, Panago, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. Dude. Shout out to Panago. Not a sponsor, just a fan. Just a fan of Panago and their veggie korma. Yeah, um, but I will say I love me some Domino's because it's way more cost effective. Mm-hmm. And they're way more loosey-goosey with discount codes. <laughs> Dare I say sloppy. Sloppy. Just um, like you when you're eating the za. <laughs> I'm getting raunch all over my t-shirt. Damn it. <laughs> Fuck. Now I got a raunch stain on my jeans. Oh, I got uh, a raunch on, I got some raunch stains on my gaunch. <laughs> uh, yeah, raunch, raunch on my gaunch. Oh, uh, nice. Oh, Rancho Magans, there's a shirt. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. We go. do good work here. We do. Oh, great work. We do great work. God's work, dare I say. Truly, um, pod, pod's work. Yeah, pod's work. Uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I think it is interesting. Like, John Landis, well, here, here's the thing. Like, both films lean into their genre and just play them very straight. Mm-hmm. Like, the horror isn't, like, spooky jump out at you horror it's just like no. i'm just gonna slowly reveal to you how sadistic and fucked up this situation is and uh-huh. both films do that uh-huh. they just sort of show you as a matter of fact they're like 
Isn't this grizzly? Like, David Bowie does some gnarly shit in Into the Night. Like, he's, like, a violent character. And and just, right. like, sadistic. And nobody's ever, like, oh, my God, is that David Bowie? <laughs> They're just, like, wow, who's this vaguely European guy with two colored eyes? He's good with yeah. a knife. He puts a gun in Jeff Goldblum's mouth and shit like that, you know? If this, if it happened nowadays, though, it'd be something very, very violent. Like David Bowie would put a gun in someone's mouth and like blow their head off or whatever, and then the other person would be like, "So that happened," you know? Yeah, yeah. And exactly. Characters are like that, where they kind of just quip about the the horrifying reality that they're experiencing. Neither film winks at the audience. I think I think that's what the similarity is. Neither film goes like, "Huh, huh." Even yeah. with all the cameos, they're so like subtle because it's just like, "Hey, was that?" So and so, like it's it's so quick, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah and they're, they're always doing wingless. something. It's like, oh, I'm uh, the guy making the the burgers pasta. or what the the pasta. Yeah. Anyways, do you, do you have another uh, similarity? Oh yeah, uh, I'd say insomnia is a theme in both films. Ooh, or is you're a right. Thing that unifies the two because Jeff Goldblum's character famously just can't get to sleep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Into the Night. Maybe why it's called that. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, after her entire family dies, mm-hmm. it seems like uh, Florence Pugh's character is unable to function properly mm-hmm. uh, and then goes to like sunny Sweden and has to deal with a time zone change. So mm-hmm. even if she does eventually sleep during the film. Uh, but not well, know, with not well with nightmares. With yeah, exactly. nightmares, yeah. Yeah, if I can like yes and that, I guess both uh, films sort of, they're, protagonist is aimlessly searching for some sort of change without knowing what the answer is right because it's insomnia but also he's unhappy with his marriage and he's being cheated on exactly she is unhappy because everyone is dead that she ever loved Mm -hmm. and she's just making decisions arbitrarily to try to feel better but and they both are and i guess they're both following their lovers somewhere she's um following him but she's also on the on the run from him i would say like in midsummer like uh in that he's like toxic so she's kind of trapped with him like she's trying to escape him even though she goes with him to sweden yeah well and i both movies have couples playing cat and mouse with each other yeah exactly even even, they, they could be in the same car but they're dodging each other or the same plane or whatever and they're dodging each other well, they don't weird. actually, you know, they're, they're shit that is ill-defined or whatever in their it, relationship. It's women running from toxic men or dealing yes. with toxic men, I guess, because that's she's right. got her boyfriend guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I guess, I mean, both are just kind of, as people who are in over their heads, one is being cheated on and one is on the run from a toxic person. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Midsommar, it's, that just happens to be the same person, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then at the end, someone is burned alive in a bear suit. That's right. Well, two huge similarities, right? So <laughs> a, a guy in a bear suit is burned alive after taking some crazy drugs in both films. Yes. And the other thing is both films have a horrific scene about halfway through the movie that really just changes the tone where an old Swedish man jumps off a cliff, doesn't die, and then has to get his head smashed in by a giant hammer. Yeah, yeah, that happens in both films. Well, also, um, and it's fucked. Going back to the conversation about comedy and horror and and violence and all that stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, they're both kind of playing against their 
type at moments, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether doing it on purpose or not, like in Into the Night. It's a comedy, but I didn't laugh. No. And then in uh, Midsommar, when I saw it in the theater originally, when all that violent stuff happened, when the people jumped off a cliff and smashed their face into the rock, yeah, people were laughing. Well, and it, it was almost it was almost like played for laughs in a I, way. I, I I think the way he does it in Midsommar is like absurd yeah. and deliberately so, especially with how the film is built up to to that point. Mm-hmm. You're like, is this going to get really gnarly or is it not? And then everything turns. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think he 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 kind of plays it almost for laughs because of how absurdly violent it is. Yeah. And yeah. especially out of nowhere, like with the slow motion and the everything, you know, it's just fucked. Yeah, it's wild that we figured out how to uh, pretend to smash someone's face into a rock. Yeah. And convince people that it looks so real. Yeah, it's also, you know, that's somebody's that's movie magic. job. Yeah. You know? Well, it's like uh, when, when we had Lindsay on, you know, like somebody's leg and arm was bit off by a giant tooth. Yeah. It looked very real. Yeah. And Lindsay Lindsay paid people to do that. I know. To make it look look like it was for real on camera. That's magic. That's movie magic. That is movie magic. Dare I say that's cinema. <laughs> Both films uh feature super smart people as the main characters. That's right. That's right. Because uh Jeff Goldblum's character is an aerospace engineer and they will not let you forget it throughout the film. Boy, you you got that right. They bring yeah. it up often. And then there's that one scene where he's like talking with his colleagues about aerospace stuff and they're just talking technical jargon mm-hmm. and it's like impenetrable mm-hmm. and it's like, why, why even bother with this? Like we know he's an aerospace engineer. You've told us we don't need mm-hmm. to see him doing it. Dumb it down a shade eggheads. I would, I would say the one thing about Midsummer that I thought was like weak mm-hmm. was the subplot with the master's students fighting over their thesis. Yeah, I was like, "This is boring and annoying." It was and actually like, who stupid. Cares? Yeah, like it's it just felt forced. Yeah, um, like he's like, "Oh, I just need one more layer of conflict before we get all fucking gnarly." And it yeah, just that felt was very actually kind of forced dumb. and silly. I was like, "Eh, this is weak. This is oh. where like I think Hereditary is a better film, a stronger film." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like one of the biggest faults of Midsommar is the. Is the whole subplot with the master's students fighting with their egos what? over with their thesis, you know? So which move, which version did you see? Because there's a 171 minute long director's cut of Midsommar. I saw the whatever's on Netflix. Yeah, it's not that one. Oh, so, I saw the short in, baby one. Apparently, in the longer one, it's they really get into detail about the oh uh, thesis stuff, and <laughs> you see the guy writing it and. Uh, no, just kidding. I'm just. Oh, jeez. Oh my god. I was like, you're describing my hell. <laughs> yeah. Just it's like, oh, we need to really flesh out this this uh, thesis writing plot. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like you're uh, having people. People are dying around you, or you're witnessing people dying, mm-hmm. and then after witnessing that, you're like, mm, I should probably get back to thinking about my thesis again. Yeah. yeah. While I'm in it's this foreign absurd. land where these all these scary cult people from the get go, you know they're they're bad. They're just creeps. Yeah. You just know. Uh, something that kind of unites both films is like the way that uh, characters deal with uh, traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the uh, an extremely traumatic experience is the inciting incident of Midsommar where her, 
or Florence Pugh's character's family dies. Yeah. In like a murder suicide situation. Yes. So that's like an inciting incident. But then when they go to Midsommar land, whatever they call it, and then they see all of these people die in front of them in an extremely violent way. The, the trauma of that is not really played realistically. I don't mm-hmm. think so because that one character is like, I got to write my thesis. I got to get my thesis done, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, kind of interesting that most movies kind of like step over the reality of what trauma characters are going through at all times because in pretty much every movie, because of the conflict that's happening, unless it's super low stakes, you know, people are traumatized on some level. Mm-hmm. So just all of the violence in Into the Night, you'd think people would, these characters would be like, I got to get out of here. But yeah. uh, they just keep getting deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think something you brought up that is interesting is b- b- both both films have an inciting incident where someone dies. Mm-hmm. Pretty much out of the gate, right? Because Michelle Pfeiffer's with that one dude, and he dies, and that's kind of what sets everything off. And then, obviously, with Florence Pugh's character's family, that's like another inciting incident. So they both like both of these films are very grisly, yeah, and like morbid. And I didn't even didn't even realize. But most movies, the characters don't react normally to how someone would probably react, just because uh, yeah. the, the movie has to keep going, like. If, if, you know, if in every horror movie when you watched your friend die, mm-hmm. you know, you'd be a wreck for the rest of the film. But mm-hmm. the characters just kind of like be like, oh, no, this guy died. Can you believe the reality of this horror film we're in? This mm-hmm. guy is chasing us and he's like, has a, fu- a funny mask on. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's all these rules that we have to follow. And then they just kind of go, they're like, let's have sex after we just had someone we know die. The your horniest post spooky. Another that's a another fact. piece. Another <laughs> quote for our shirt. <laughs> you watch a Midsummer and you're like, wow, this is set in the mood for some Jesus. kinky business. You know, you're not walking away from that film nauseous. You're walking away horny. Mm, interesting. Are you speaking yeah. from experience here? Your horniest. Post I don't know. Spooky? I've never seen the film. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Uh, anyways, do you have any more? Uh, the, only, the only one I had was that both kind of had uh, unnecessary nudity in them. Right. Well, right. there was some necessary nudity in Midsommar. But. I would say the nudity was uh, like very tasteful in Midsommar, but in uh, fucking End of the Night, it was just like, okay, it's the 80s. Yeah, exactly. This is status quo for the 80s comedy, like R-rated comedy. Well, the the big sex scene, you know, he didn't have to have all of those naked people around him while he was having sex with that lady. That's true. But I think the reason the nudity is like cool is that they're all just like normal older ladies. They're not just like all, whereas like into the night, it's like, Oh, only, only, only fit people can be naked in this movie. Yeah. But also in, you know, when I saw Midsommar, people laughed at the nudity. Oh, really? Because I think... Well, it's they, absurd. They, 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 yeah, it was an absurd situation, and I think the normality of the people's bodies also was like funny to people, I think. Yeah, well, they're not enough. used to that, right? Because it's, 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 it's not normalized in North American cinema. Cinema. Yeah, like North American cinema, you sort of have to be a very specific body type to be naked on camera, which is stupid and I think changing. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, yeah, yeah. 
And like, you know, 1980s comedies are a good example of like, oh, you kind of got to be hot to be naked in this movie, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, the, the way that people reacted at the screening of Midsommar I saw way back when it came out, yeah, definitely not an objective uh, take on the film. Yeah, that that was that specific screening. You know, maybe other people reacted differently to other ones, but uh, yeah, just kind of interesting that mm-hmm. how people react to the extreme violence and the normal bodied nudity. Mm-hmm. Not to say that people who are super fit are not normal bodied. No, they're free. We don't want let's, we don't want them honest. to we don't want them to feel, uh, you know, shamed for having perfect bodies. Screw you and your tight <laughs> chassis. Go to hell. That's what I say. <laughs> Great. Well, this feels over. Well, okay, yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> uh, yeah, this feels over for sure. So nice. But, uh, nice. yeah, we can. More hurtful this when you say it. I don't know why. Why? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just yeah, because it's just like, more I'm abrupt with, and I'm done talking mean. to this guy. Yeah. It's like I'm uh, done with you, Bob. I'm gonna discard you like a Swedish sacrifice. I'm gonna put you in a bear suit, wrap you up, give you some hallucinogenics, and light you on fire because I'm finished with you. I'm gonna burn you like a cigarette. I'm gonna throw you in a in a bin full of di- dirty clothes because I got some <laughs> ranch on my gaunch. So you're my ra- uh, you're my, gaunch, my raunchy gaunch. Yeah, that's right. You're the ranch on my gaunch. That actually would make an amazing T-shirt. It just, <laughs> says from Justin DeCane has our little logo, and then it says ranch on my gaunch. Yeah, it's got a picture of underwear with like ranch dressing spilling on it. Yeah, yeah. Or what about this? Uh, we should change our logo to a dog uh, drinking a ranch out of a dog dish. Yes. Huh? Just just a canine bit. Canines, a canine love, bit. canines love ranch. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, follow us on social media from Justin Duquesne with the number two. Email us at fromjustinduquesne at gmail.com, all words. And uh, that's about it. I don't know. Listen to Everything. all of our past episodes. Why not? Huh? Everything you just said on a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. The perfect gift for your loved ones this coming Christmas. Well, all this information is in like the show notes or whatever on the podcast app. So if people really wanted news. to find this out, our listeners can't it. read because they're dogs. Okay. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. They're right. illiterate. They can listen, but they can't speak but, and they can't oh, read. They can, re- they can really listen. They've got great hearing. Yeah. Great hearing. Great sniffers. Actually, but, no, we, we should be, we, we should be playing a, like a um, frequency during every one of our podcasts that only like dogs a dog can whistle. hear. Yeah. Oh, that'd yeah, be yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm going to start doing that going forward when I edit these. That's uh, hilarious. That's yeah. great. That's great. And then just people are like, stop doing that. My dog is freaking out. <laughs> I'm trying to listen to the podcast in the car and the dog is freaking out. <laughs> I used to listen to your podcast until you put that dog whistle in it and uh, screw you guys. And then also, I put a dog whistle in just as like a as a fun like meta joke. Then you put dog whistles in for all of your you know racism. Wait, what? Okay, bye everybody. <laughs> <laughs> ay, ay, ay. <laughs> <laughs>